Okay, why don't we uh, turn in our scriptures to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sothenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we want to give you thanks for the Corinthian church and the lessons that we can learn from them. We look forward to the next few weeks as we dive into learning about uh, them and the work you did in their lives and how it applies to us. And so may this be the first week in honoring you with the way we have to think like you and to work through any uh, issues in our lives that may show the same kind of struggles and immaturity as they did. At the same time, the faithfulness in the areas where they had it. So we just pray, God, for, um, for your wisdom now. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, well, we're starting a new series today um, from the book of Corinth, or the church of Corinth. And what we're going to do for the next uh, few weeks, probably 10 weeks minimum, is we're going to walk through the Corinthian church and some of the life lessons that uh, Paul had to teach them and lessons that we want to apply to our own lives as well. And I'm planning on doing about 10 sermons on the Corinthian church from the first letter, but I may do more depending on the nature of discussions and the things we're talking about in Genesis House and may even dive into the second letter if necessary. So let me just give you a little bit of background about Corinth before we actually get into the letter a bit. Uh, Corinth was uh, in the Bible times, like in the first century, was located, uh, which uh, is still, well, actually it's a city that still exists today and so does Athens, but it's located in Greece. And so you'll see in the map that Macedonia um, was the name of it back then. And you see the cities of Berea, Thessalonica. You'll notice that the province below is called Achaia. But basically, this is modern-day Greece. And Athens and Corinth, uh, if you were to drive today, they're about 80 kilometers apart. So to give you an idea of distance, Athens to Corinth is 80 kilometers. takes just over an hour by car. And so you can see the location was desirable uh, for people back then because it was a port city. And port cities, of course, are busy cities. Uh, they're, they're places of trade. They're places of uh, like uh, lots of uh, multi-ethnic <laughs> people coming to and fro as they come to seek to do commerce. But uh, interesting, Corinth was located just on this isthmus, like this uh, skinny body about four miles long that connected uh, the, the southern portion of Greece and the northern portion of Greece. And so it had a huge desire because of its location, because it connected the east and the west. You could get people from Italy, like in, the, in, sort of in that area, from the west, could come to, through the passages of water to Corinth and be able to uh, trade and do things with people on the east just because of the location of where it was. And as a sailor, you wouldn't have to go around the entire southern portion of that land to get to, say, the Ionian Sea where the Italy was and vice versa. So that's about a 200-mile stretch, apparently, around those, that, that land where there was rougher waters and so on. So, uh, again, Corinth is a desirable place because it connects the east and the west. Great place for commerce, great place for trade. And uh, there was a poet by the name of Horace who wrote in praise of Corinth. He called it the Twin Seed City, the Twin Seed City, because it connected the sea in the west and the sea in the east. Now, of course, this would then mean it would attract many visitors and merchants year-round, which is great for business, but it also created a certain culture. 
Whenever you think of a port city with a bunch of sailors, <laughs> you know what kind of lifestyle that's going to be. And uh, that's exactly what it was like there. It was a sailor town, uh, and it was uh, uh, known for drunkenness and partying. It was kind of like the stampede grounds uh, for those 10 days. Uh, um, interestingly enough, uh, the most pregnancies apparently in Calgary occurred nine months after stampede. So there you go. Uh, most babies are born, I should say, nine months after stampede. So anyhow, so it's a, it's a party town known for drunkenness. And this Greek writer by the name of, I think I'm pronouncing it right, Elian, but uh, I'm sorry if I'm not getting it right, but this Greek writer wrote that whenever a Corinthian was portrayed in a stage play in Greco-Roman culture, a Corinthian was always portrayed as a drunken person on stage. So if you were applying for a show in a Greek play, and then someone says, we need a Corinthian, you automatically knew that your role was to be the drunk in that play. That's how known they were for their kind of lifestyle. But they had a reputation not just for drinking, but for huge gross immorality sexual immorality in particular. The New Testament makes it clear that the Greco-Roman world was steeped in idolatry. You know, when, when Paul praises Thessalonica, he says, you have turned from idols to serve a living God. When he speaks to the Romans, he talks about all these temple practices and food sacrifice to idols. Well, it's clear in Corinth, there was temple worship going on um, to idols where animal sacrifices were going on, but there was lots of prostitution. In 1 Corinthians 6, we're going to see this, but Paul had to speak to them about uh, uh, um, people uh, uniting themselves with prostitutes. So this was a way that they would commune with their gods. And the chief god in Corinth at the time was Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And so the way you communed with her and it was to do the animal sacrifices, but you, you would sleep with the temple prostitutes and so on that were in the city. And that's the way it would go on. I can't prove this, but... Every source I read that was extra biblical said they estimated a thousand temple prostitutes. In fact, I couldn't find a source that didn't say otherwise. A thousand temple prostitutes. Now, let me give you an example of what a, a temple looked like. Um, I mean, this isn't a great example because it's missing the majority of it, but this was a temple to Apollos, Apollos in Corinth that still stands today. You can get a picture of the steps leading up and the huge columns with the roof line and whatnot. And... Um, I couldn't find any pictures online of a temple to Aphrodite still standing in Corinth or remains. If there is, I just couldn't find them. But I did find temples of Aphrodite in other cities in Europe that still stand. So this gives you an example of what it would look like. And you can imagine now as you fill in the pictures what this would have been going on. But again, you were, if you were known as an immoral person in the Greco-Roman culture, you were called a Corinthian. Or if you were to act immorally, you were to, be, uh, you were to Corinthianize. This is the kind of reputation they had. So when Paul shows up to plant this church in, in his second missionary journey, let's just say he had his work cut out for him. <laughs> so church, the church is founded by Paul in Acts 18. He comes from Athens, which again, we can see on this map. He comes from Athens, he travels to Corinth, he arrives there, and upon the meeting in Acts 18 of arriving there, he, he finds a husband and wife team by the name of Priscilla and Aquila, who had not long before Paul arrived there from Italy. Now, their arrival in Italy was a circumstance of tra tragedy. They were forced to leave Rome, it says in the Bible, in Acts 18, because of anti-Semitism. They were Jewish, and the Emperor Claudius in Rome had expelled them from the land from being Jews. So, you know, this whole anti-Semitism movement we still see in Canada and the United States and around the world, this has been something going on to the history of the Jewish people. It's, it's never stopped. 
So Pharaoh did it. Um, you know, uh, Haman did it in, in, in Esther's day. Uh, Hitler did it. I mean, it's just been a constant, constant issue for the Jews throughout history. Now, how Paul met um, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, we don't know. Uh, but we know they were both tent makers. And so, like Paul, they had this similar trade to Paul. And Paul would only do tent making, of course, when um, he didn't lack the resources to go into full-time ministry. And he'd have to do bivocational work. But their biggest commonality was their faith in Christ. Now, it seems the way the New Testament writes it, that Priscilla and Aquila probably had a faith in Jesus before Paul showed up, just because of the way they're portrayed. Um, and also that would be possible because there was a church in Rome already in existence when Paul was in Corinth. The gospel had spread that far, and Paul didn't plant a church in Rome. However, it's also Paul, possible that in his brief time with them, because Paul was an effective evangelist, that maybe Priscilla and Aquila came to faith through Paul, and because they were tent makers, they would hang out together, and so he shared the gospel. But I, I, the Bible's silent in how they came to faith. But regardless, they proved to be instrumental in helping Paul fulfill his ministry calling. They had a great reputation, Priscilla and Aquila, through the church, not only in Paul's life, but in the, in the whole Roman world in terms of the Gentile churches. I want to read to you uh, Romans 16.3. This is Paul's own words. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who for my life risked their own necks, to, to who not only do I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. So they had a major influence on Paul's life. So when Paul gets there, he meets them, but then he starts going into synagogues. That was his custom. He'd always go to the Jews' uh, synagogues because he was Jewish and try to minister there. And just like any, everywhere else he went, he was rejected by the majority. I never forget, uh, it was Dick Lucas said, every time Paul went into a synagogue, he, left, he came in through the door and left out the window. <laughs> he basically got picked up and chucked out. That was basically his... Uh, his entry and exit out of every church, every synagogue. But we do see in Acts and 18, there was some positive reception. Um, one of the synagogue leaders, Crispus, comes to faith and others do as well. And so Paul has a, a, a starts the house church out of Jewish converts uh, in, in sense uh, from the synagogues and then they spread to the Gentile people and so on. So Paul is there for a year and a half in Acts 18:11. He was there for a year and a half and then he leaves. He leaves. But after some time, he receives a report from a group within the church in 1 Corinthians 1.11 called Chloe's People. And he hears this report from Chloe's People in 1.11 that the church in Corinth is not doing so hot. Things have backslidden. And so it's Chloe's letter to him that occasions this letter to the church. So he has to address areas of concern. And there were multiple areas in the church that Paul had to deal with. And his pattern was to address the issue and follow it up with how the gospel, in some way the gospel, provided the solution to the problem. He always referred them back to Jesus, who he was, what he did in the cross, as the means of reconciling the problem to correct their behavior. And that's a pretty cool thing to think about. So here's how the letters divided up. Chapters 1 through 4, there are divisions in the church. Chapters 5 through 7, he deals with sexual relations in the church. Chapters 8 through 10, he deals with food issues in the church. Chapters 11 through 14, he deals with the church gathering and the worship services. Chapter 9 or 15, he deals with the issues of the resurrection. And then chapter 16, he does the final greeting. 
But let me just say before we get into these issues, one more thing. I want to introduce in the introduction two characteristics of this church that are super, super important to make it life relevant today. First of all, and you already know some of the problems because you know the letter well, so I haven't even explained what these issues are yet, but let me just say this. They are a church filled with problems, filled with sin, and look how he defines them in verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, for those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. (laughs) This is a sin-riddled church currently, and Paul says, you are saints. You are saints. He calls them believers. Look at verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which is given you in Christ Jesus. So again, he's thanking God for who these people are. Secondly, I think it's really important is they were the most spiritually gifted church in the New Testament that we can see anyway from how it's written. They had all the gifts of the Holy Spirit in operation in the church. Look at verse uh, 7. He says, you are not lacking in any gift as you await eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as you wait the second coming, you are not lacking a single spiritual gift. You know what, church? We are. We are. Can I prove it to you? Anybody? Maybe you, Paul. I don't know. Can anyone interpret tongues? Not speak in tongues. Can anyone interpret tongues in here? We're lacking a spiritual gift. You get the point. Corinth is not lacking any spiritual gift. But here's the point, church. Even though they have all the gifts of the Spirit in operation, they're very immature. (laughs) They're immature. And Paul gives them more warnings than any other church in the Bible that I can see. So this, again, screams lessons to us. So let's look at the divisions now. Chapters 1 through 4. The reason divisions existed was within Corinth, they believed that who your leader was, was important to giving you a certain elite status within the church community. Who your leader was, was important because that gave you a spiritual status that someone else didn't. So they would form groups. They would form groups around these leaders and believed that they were superior because they had one leader over another. And so he says in verse 11, I've been informed by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. Here's the quarrels. Now I mean this, that each of one of you is saying, I'm of Paul. Another person is saying, I'm of Apollos. Another person is saying, I'm of Cephas. Another person is saying, I'm of Christ. And Paul's answer is, are you serious? Are you serious? Is that how you think? The church isn't a popularity contest, Paul says. There shouldn't be infighting, and as chapter 3, verse 3 says, jealousy. And as chapter 4, verse 6 says, arrogance amongst you. He says in chapter 3, verse 9, all of God's leaders are nothing more than servants of Jesus Christ. That's it. They are all servants of the Lord. And here's what's cool in 3.9. He actually calls them fellow workers. He says, for we are all God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. 
So Paul says, you're not to take this elitist pedestal by forming a group around your leader. The leaders are simply servants of the Lord. The whole, everything is centered around Jesus Christ. Everybody in the church, you just focus your life and center around Christ, not the spiritual leader of the church. And he even goes on to say, if you have an elitist attitude and you're arrogant in these ways, look at 3.1. He actually says, I cannot speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. So way to take him off the pedestal. You think you're elite because you have bronchopolis? You're a baby. You're a baby. You think you're elite because you belong to me? You're just a little baby. You're a toddler. You're a little infant in your faith. Wow, what a, way to, what a way to knock him off the pedestal. How about in the area of sexual relationships? In chapter 5, there's incest going on. In chapter 5, it says that there's a, a, a son who has taken his father's wife. Now, there's some debate as whether it was a stepmother or whether it was a biological mother. But either way, Paul says, it's, Paul says what are you doing because you've done nothing to correct this behavior in the church. Incest is going on, and you've done nothing. Instead, you're celebrating what's going on. You probably had the attitude, well, Christ is, uh, we're saved by faith, and so how we live doesn't matter. Or, you know, God's grace is sufficient to cover all sin. And he says, what are you doing? He goes, if I was in your midst, I would have corrected this long ago. So incest. Second one is prostitution. In chapter 6, the whole second half of the chapter is dedicated to this. Um, people are uniting themselves with prostitutes, probably going to the temples and, and, and doing that, or the prostitutes have come down in the evening to the sort of like the shoreline and mingled in the city, and people are doing this. And so Paul has to correct them and say, don't you know that your body is important to the Lord? Don't you know that? He says, your, your body is the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. So when you unite yourself with a prostitute, you're uniting that God's spirit in you with that woman. Not only this, he says, Jesus was raised from the dead, and so will you. So you think the body's not important? If it's not important, why are you going to be resurrected at the end of times? Your body matters to the Lord. Another issue within this that was going on um, actually was in... Um, was actually in uh, the area within marriage. In chapter 7, it says that they were withholding sex from one another. In chapter 7, he says, he has to say, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another. There was withholding going on. And, and he's clear. He says, if you do this, you set the table for the devil to do a work in your marriage. But he also had to address singleness. There were people who were widowed, wondered if they could get remarried. There were people that were probably never been married that were wondering if it was more honorable to serve the Lord and more spiritual to stay single, or was it more spiritual to get married? So he had to address issues for them. And there were marital issues in the church as well. Uh, some were wondering what to do about divorce and if you could get remarried. And some were wondering, if you are married to an unbeliever, does that defile you in any way? Does God look favorably, less favorably upon you because there's a, a non-spiritual person in terms of being related to Christ in the marriage union? And so Paul has to deal with that. And he says, well, if, they, if the unbeliever wants to leave, let him go. But if he wants to stay, let him stay. So he, he works them through these things. 
Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Within this, though, there's one little key piece that I haven't mentioned. One little key piece, and it didn't fit into my little perfect boxes here. In chapter six, he also deals with lawsuits. He deals with lawsuits. Apparently, in the Corinth, they were taking each other to court. And Paul said, I got a big problem with this. First of all, the fact that you're getting to court shows that there's a problem in terms of how you love one another. But secondly, he says, why are you going to secular courts to judge Christian matters? He says, don't you know that you'll be part of the judgment of angels? And don't you know that you're going to judge the world? So we'll be assisting Jesus Christ in the judgment? He says, so why, if we're going to be judging angels and judging in the world in the end times, why are you going to secular courts to judge matters? And so he has to speak to them. And I know, and I'll share with you if we do this passage, because I'm going to pick 10 random topics from Corinth. But if we do this one, I'm going to share of true stories I know in Okotoks of people who have taken each other to court within the Christian context. It's applicable today as it was 2,000 years ago. Paul then moves to food, and one of the biggest issues was meat sacrificed to idols. So you go to a temple to worship the god and the, the, of Papalus or Aphrodite, and f- animals would be sacrificed, and you would eat the meat and drink the blood of, of these animals. And so likely what was going on is these, these food then, would, after the, the celebration, after these big sort of worship services, they would then sell the meat in the markets. And so as a Christian, you could go buy the meat. And so you'd have supper with one another, and then you'd be eating food. And so there was some divisions going on about whether this was godly or not to eat the meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul makes it very clear. He says, uh, idols are not real. Therefore, meat that comes from them can't ever be defiled. If an idol is not real, then the meat can't be defiled. So he says, you're free to eat. However, he says, there's a principle that overrides this whole thing. It's a principle that comes from the gospel, basically, and that is love. He says, whenever you feel that you have a freedom in Christ to eat, since idols aren't real, he says, if someone in the church midst will ha- wants to head back into an area of sin, i.e. go back to the temple to start practicing in the worship services and so on, then you do not eat that food. So you're free in Christ to eat because the food's not defiled. But if you become a stumbling block, if you cause someone to want to head back into an old sinful pattern of life, you don't eat. So love trumps your freedom in that case. Then he gets to the church gathering, and the first issue is communion. There's some disorder and things going badly in communion. They have an elitist mentality. You know how they went, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul? Well, in the church, there was this elitist mentality where they, some people saw themselves as superior to others. And so some in chapter 11 of Corinth, of the Corinthian letter, were going hungry and getting drunk in the services. Uh, yeah, they were, they were, he says here, um, he says in verse 20, Therefore, when you meet together, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and the other is drunk. And he goes, what? <laughs> he goes, what? So the elitist mentality is this. I got the money. I got all the food. I'm going to eat everything I want and let the person who's poor in the church go hungry. Also, I have all the wine, all that to do communion and so on. I'm going to drink it all, get drunk, and leave the other person to go hungry. 
or without, without wine. And Paul's corrective is, do you remember what the gospel is? Do you remember what communion's all about? It's about remembering what Jesus did. It's self-giving love. It's about reconciliation. It's about unity. The cross is all about those things. And you're not loving others by doing this. You're not seeking unity by doing this. You're not seeking to reconcile by doing this. You're doing the very opposite. And he's a strong warning. He says, some of you have died in the church because of your abuse of the Lord's Supper. And the Lord was the one who executed judgment. You're not handling it, so the God's doing it for you. That's another important question. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> Physical for sure in that context, initially, yeah. Spiritual gifts then are the next issue. In spiritual gifts, we've already determined that uh, they're not lacking in anything. Verse, chapter 1, verse 7, they don't lack any gift. In chapter 14, verse 12, they're zealous for gifts. They, they, they earnestly desired them. So the issue in Corinth was not that they lack gifts or not the gifts themselves. But first, their problem was in their overemphasis that some spiritual gifts were superior to others. They believed especially that tongues give you an upper hand on every other gift in the church. The second issue was their immaturity and how they were being appropriated. So let's deal with the superiority issue in terms of gifts. They thought that gifts are more important than others, and again, tongues is their primary one. And Paul basically gives a cool illustration to say, you got it wrong. You got it wrong. He says, let me give you an illustration of the human body. Do you think one gift's more superior to the other? Imagine the human body. He says, the, the um, eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the foot, I don't need you. He goes, all of the body parts are necessary for the human body to function well. One is not more important than the other. He says, so likewise, the body of Christ is the same way. You have the gift of tongues. You can't turn to the person who has the gift of administration and say, I'm better than you. I don't need you. They're both required to get the church functioning uh, the way the Lord intended and what the gifts were for. And what were the gifts for? The building up of the body, not the self-edification of the individual who had the gift. And this is where the whole, he slams his point home by saying, if you don't, well, actually, he slams his point by, home by saying this, uh, if you have all the gifts in the world, but you don't know how to love one another, you've, you're a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. So these church bells ring every day at noon, because in the second service, I hear them go off. <laughs> I know that they're there to tell it's 12, but they always bother me because I'm in the midst of my sermon, and they, I have to wait for them to get out of my head. That's kind of what it's like when you're speaking in tongues and prophesying out loud and things like that, and nobody knows, like, out of order, and no one knows what you're saying. It's like a noisy gong. It doesn't edify the church one bit. It edifies the individual who's saying it. And so he, this is where the love chapter comes in. The whole, you know the love chapter? Every secular wedding you go to, they want love is patient, love is kind, love, you know, is, does, seeks no wrongs, or no, love is not jealous and arrogant. They give the love chapter as a way to remind the secular couples of how to live. When Corinth heard that chapter, they weren't using it, Paul wasn't using it to praise them. 
He gave them that love chapter as a rebuke. So, like, you know, we cheer for that chapter in marriage ceremonies. They would have been looking at their feet with pink faces and embarrassment because Paul was calling them on the table. He's saying, I'm telling you how to love because you don't know how to love. In the very chapter where love is, he says, love is not arrogant. Love is not jealous. And what are they? I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm better than you. I have the gift of tongues. I'm better than you. The love chapter is a rebuke that we use in weddings as an edification. <laughs> I'm not saying you can't use it in weddings, but we've got to get the context right. So Paul's really saying this. You might, have, you might think you're having intense spiritual experiences, and you might think you're having this chance to be heard in the church. Without love, it means jack squat. The other issue, of course, was that their worship services were disorderly because, again, people were speaking out in heavenly languages and nobody knew what anyone was saying. Um, people were interrupting as, they, as the services were going on. People were prophesying. One person would stand up and interrupt the other. And so this was going on. And Paul says in, as a corrective in chapter 14, you need to do everything in order. Everything in order. And he teaches them how to do so. I'll read you uh, 1440. He says, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. And why did it matter? Because if it wasn't, the believers in the church weren't gaining anything from it. I mean, imagine Rob's got the gift of prophecy, and as he starts three words in, Laura stands up and goes, I have a word from the Lord. And then she's six words in, and then Darcy stands up and says, I have a, and starts speaking in tongues. And everybody else is going, what in the world is going on here? And then we have a new, an unbeliever comes into the church and sits in the back. And they listen to all this going on. You know what they think of you? You're crazy. They think you're lunatics. That's exactly what Paul says. He says, when an unbeliever comes in the midst, they're not going to walk in glorif away glorifying God. But he says, if you do it in order, and the unbeliever's there, and they listen to one speak, and then one interpret, one get the gift of prophecy, and so on, the unbeliever wants to fall on their face and worship God because they can't believe God's in your midst. The gifts are not the problem. It's the way you're appropriating the problem. This speaks like volumes to the differences in, in church denominations that we have today and the way church services are carried out. And hence why we have some on one side who vehemently oppose the charismatic churches and the charismatic churches vehemently oppose the non-charismatic churches, but they're both have merit. They just have to be done in order. The final thing, or not the final, actually is the final thing that Paul deals with is the resurrection. There's some in Corinth that say that there's, the resurrection was ridiculous and was irrelevant to the faith. And Paul basically says, if you believe that, you're deadly wrong. He says the resurrection is central to the gospel. It's absolutely foundational to the gospel. First of all, he says this. If you say there's no resurrection, you're making a fool out of the witnesses who saw it. There were over 500 people that saw the resurrection according to the New Testament. He says, if you deny the resurrection, you basically are calling all the witnesses a liar. And the names that were credible in that were people like Peter and the apostles. So you're basically flat out saying the apostles are liars. Pretty arrogant for a Corinthian who wasn't there to say that. Second thing he says is it's core to the gospel. 
If Jesus is not raised from the dead, then there is no forgiveness of sins. The wages of sin is death. You die because you sin. If Jesus doesn't raise from the dead, your, your sins remain. Because you won't be raised either at the resurrection. So he says the resurrection is necessary, necessary because it's your only source of victory over sin and death. And he says also, if he isn't resurrected, our preaching is a waste of time. Your faith is useless. And the believers are the most pitiful people in the world. Because they're living their lives on a lie. They're suffering all this persecution for the sake of Jesus, and it's a lie? You should be pitied. And so Paul finishes the letter with a final greeting. And we know what's cool about this? You've probably heard me say over and over throughout these sections that love has been a key defining characteristic of how to work through this. Love is defined by the gospel. Look at 16, verse... Uh, let me see, sorry, got to find it. 16 verse 14 is a finalization. Listen to this. This is a final greeting, 16, 14. Let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. How you work through the leadership issues in the church, be done in love. How you work through sexual practices and singleness and marriage and divorce, be done in love. How you make decisions about what to eat and not to eat, be done in love. How you deal with communion, the appropriating of the spiritual gifts, be done in love. How you deal with understanding the resurrection, be done in love. Love, 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 love. Hence the love chapter again in chapter 13. So what do we learn from Corinth? We're going to be going through like I said, at least 10 sermons as I pick topics to talk about in the church I think are appropriate for us today as believers. Let me just say these quickly. Even churches that are under the guidance of great spiritual leadership can still have problems. (laughs) I will never, ever replace Paul in my abilities, my giftings, my understanding of the word, my, my understanding of Christ. He will always have me beat. Not that it's a contest, but he just, he just, he, I mean, his experiences with the Lord and his understanding of the Old Testament, like, I'll never understand like him. And yet, even him, even he had a hard time getting the churches to walk in faith with Christ. Moses and Israel, Jesus and the disciples, Paul and Corinth, the greatest spiritual leaders can still have problems within a church. So the issue is not that we're not going to, we're not looking, we're not, not, not that we're not going to have problems, it's just how we deal with them and how we work through them. Second lesson, a church that is fully operational with all the spiritual gifts does not necessarily mean that it is mature or that God is pleased with them. There's a massive chapter in chapter 10 that I didn't even talk about in the sermon. He warns the Corinthians, if you persist in doing this, these actions, you're going to end up like Israel in the wilderness. Dead. <laughs> a huge warning to Corinth. You, he gives them an example. Remember your forefathers? The categories he listed of the forefathers were all the categories that were going on in their church. He says, you're, you're going to be in trouble. Yet, 
Lesson three, sin within the church does not necessarily mean that God has left that church either. To the saints in Corinth, to those sanctified in Jesus. So again, he's not promoting sin, but Paul understands that, again, spiritual growth can be slow, and there's a way to deal with sin. And so there's, a, there's this tension, there's this sort of a tightrope walk where he doesn't tolerate sin, but there's a way of dealing with sin. But eventually there comes an end point for God where he's had enough. So again, remember Moses in Israel? He goes, these ten times you've spurned me. These ten times. Patience, patience by the Lord. And finally, Love is the pervasive measure of Christian vitality. Permeates the letter to Corinth because it's the very thing that they did not possess. Lord, we give you thanks. Uh, Thank you for your word and how it speaks to the relevance of our church today. I'm grateful to you, God, for um, the questions that have come forward, and I'm looking forward to the, uh, the fun and lively discussions we have as we seek to honor you. So I pray a blessing over the people today as they leave. And uh, may your word and your spirit lead and guide them through the week as they uh, honor you with their lives. Thank you for this service. In Christ's name, amen.